0: hi everybody welcome to part two of no country behind the patreon paywall thank you very much for your subscription chris and i thank you very much for that chris i'm looking at an enormous wasp dragging a tarantula through my grass
1: Uh, fantastic
0: oklahoma has some real some real discovery channel shit in my front yard going on right now but uh and the the wasp has blue wings as well i'm gonna go online and find out that this is one of the murder hornets that i'm currently probably too close to but
1: murder hornets has got to be a the best name for a really just trashed garage band doesn't it the murder oh, absolutely hornets.
0: the murder hornets to,
1: yeah whatever happened to them you know
0: the murder oh. hornets with their with their first album flatten the curve there you a, go yeah yeah yep. yeah <laughs> but well, chris on our first part of this episode we were talking about bruce lee and that morphed into this fascinating conversation that I've, i i want to get more into about well to put it frankly the 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 nature of the pacific northwest in general and seattle in particular as a kind of haunted realm of of broken promises broken dreams youth cut short I didn't know if you had a place in particular that you wanted to pick that up or if we just, or if I just start rocking and rolling with some Brandon Lee facts.
1: Well, I look, I I'm, I'm really interested in the Brandon Lee stuff. Cause I know that you, you've got some good, uh, good stuff there that I, that I don't know about, but one thing that I would say, and it ties into our uh, part two behind the paywall theme of the ghost radio signal, which is sort of our code, for the mysterious entity, force, field, perhaps, of, of what we mean by culture with a capital C. Culture as an energizing and influencing directive vector that may not be under human control at all. We may, in fact, be expressions of it and results of it and or victims or carriers, you know. But one of the things that... uh there's still a few around, but I remember when I came to Seattle for the first time in the in the 1980s, there the city was famous for ghost signs, you know, faded historic advertising uh, signage painted onto uh, walls. And often they were beautiful to photograph because of the rich textures and sort of the whole damaged. Uh, lizard skin sort of look of some of these things. You know, a steamship company, a lost hotel, uh, maybe some old uh, gospel mission house. There's lots of wonderful, cool stuff. And there was a lot of great signage in the sort of Jetson era, bowling alley, uh, miracle mile style of, of L.A. and other parts of the West Coast. All of which came out of uh, the World's Fair of 1962. So you had a pretty rich tradition going back to the 19th century, back to prohibition and the illegal gambling clubs and a lot of mysterious, you know, laneways in the international district, uh, you know, secret clubs and cellars full of, God knows what bodies and bottles. And then you had this uh, crazy, Jetson era formica pattern design optimism, and all of that, I think, had a lot to do with a vision of middle class fantasy. Uh, a fantasy world for people who were still essentially on that edge between uh working class, blue collar, uh, wharfies, you know, people war- working the wharves. Uh, people working the railroad. Uh, there was a whole world that, you know, was looking forward to the future, and somewhere between 1962, that World's Fair, and 1979, 1982, something changed. And I liked your idea of of some, not just some sort of haunted sense but maybe even a kind of malevolent entity. Uh, I sort of pictured a Lovecraftian Pacific Northwest monster slouching, not towards Bethlehem, but uh, I don't know, towards uh, Capitol Hill.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that if there was a mythical map of the USA, I would definitely love to see that. But, you know, you have... All of this interesting psychic energy that comes from a place, you know, there. New York City, not only because it houses Wall Street and because of its, you know, kind of iconic buildings and and immigrant status and things like that, but, you know, New York in film is always the city that gets destroyed. And there have been many pieces that have been written about the fact that 9-11 Took place um, in the wake of all these disaster movies, where New York was continuously destroyed over and over and over again, and so you know, also you have uh, you have Hollywood, which has numerous stories of you know bright young stars and starlets going there to have their hopes dashed. I think the the face of the of the Black Dahlia looms over you know mm-hmm. looms over L.A. And then you go up to the Pacific Northwest, and as you said, there's this kind of almost Wendigo, Wetiko native spirit, perhaps, over the Pacific Northwest that is maybe enacting some kind of revenge on that particular area. Which, of course, I mean, what we're saying, obviously, people have good days in Seattle. There are people who love the city of Seattle. It's not that you go there and you're immediately taken by this spirit. But I am saying that there is something there, right, that I don't think is really deniable. There's a, there's, a, there's a feeling or a presence that you get when you're walking the streets of other cities in the Pacific Northwest, whether, there's, whether it's Portland, Seattle, or where, you know, uh, a mutual friend of ours lives in Astoria in Oregon, right? Mm-hmm, it's kind right. of strange, almost Innsmouth fish town, right? I remember one time we saw, he and I were fishing, and we saw a man carrying half of a sturgeon the sturgeon had been bitten apart by a some kind of shark and the guy was just shirtless stick and poke tattoos carrying half a sturgeon over his shoulder and i thought that (laughs) is nothing if not emblematic of of this (laughs) of this area right so i think i think it can't be emphasized enough that there are spirits of place and the spirits of place of the pacific northwest are are angry it, it just it feels like some kind of um revenge honestly, and that's where I, I think the tech companies come in. you know there's some kind of uh, uh, crushing of whatever the American dream was I mean why else would Amazon and Microsoft be situated in this area? Do, do you know the actual reason for these companies going there? Is it tax breaks what's the what's the deal with Seattle being the hub of all these of all these companies?
1: Well, I, the exact uh, reasoning is a little bit, uh, I think it's different in, in different contexts. But yes, tax breaks do figure in. There, there was an enormous effort. I mean, the, the 1962 World's Fair, even though that was well before the rise of, of Microsoft and, and Amazon, it was predictive of that. It was absolutely encouraging that. It was trying to break the dependence on Boeing. And mm-hmm. it, you, you couldn't break the dependence on the timber industry, you know, nor mm-hmm. the uh, the shipping, and therefore the railroads. I mean, those had to be there, and that's all good. But that that kind of stuff was messy and hard, and there's iron and, and wood, and there's also, therefore, a kind of person, a kind of, let's face it, men who are working those jobs. Mm-hmm. And the the Seattle vision for itself was... You know, uh, there's some absolutely wonderful illustrations that I think are more uh, telling than any Jetsons cartoon or any of of the science fiction fantasies because they they really are trying to sell product radar ranges. I mean, the first time people heard that is like what a radar range cooking with radar. You know, it was everything was magically new and clean and technologically driven and white. Right. And this yeah. is, I think, where some of the deep insecurity comes from because although Seattle has been long for a long time, you know, predominantly white, and it is one of the whitest cities in America, it's ethnic racial mix is 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 incredible and vital mm-hmm. and historically very, very important. We talked in, in part one, Uh, the free-to-air episode about the rich history of the international district, which in other cities would be called Chinatown. Uh, Seattle's version of that has always been really intense. There, I mean, every, there's obviously a big sort of Norwegian, Scandinavian, Swedish uh, component here. There's a lot of Ukrainians, and there is a a very powerful, um, it's small, but it's a very rich uh, African-American tradition. This was a A really important stopover or extension of what was known as the Chitlin Circuit in in musical performing terms. And going back to the 1920s, you know, and these speakeasies that no one, you know, was supposed to know about were tremendous havens of of black entertainment. Uh, We then later got people like Quincy Jones coming from Seattle. Uh, And he's someone who probably, and, you know, of course, uh, we mentioned Jimi Hendrix. So there's a lot of stuff that, in a way, uh, the, if we think of, of the revenge of these spirits, and of course, we, we have to keep in mind that the, the Native American cultures, absolutely, who were here before you know any of these other groups, it, it, you could look at one of the murals, the big mural for uh, the World's Fair, and it's a whole lot of peoples trying to break into that mural that they they're not depicted there they're not represented and that's one of the things that is going on with the woke culture side of seattle is and there are some legitimate you know good things coming out of it i'm not sure in fact that that's been delivered upon with the sincerity and uh well the clarity that that you know some people would like to believe um And I don't know where that corruption comes from, but I've seen quite a bit of it, uh, on my wanderings in, in the last week.
0: Mm. Interesting. I kind of want to leave that there for a second, because I think that this sort of line that we're on, uh, requires a little bit more research on my part, because I'm butting up against a lack of knowledge when it comes to spirits of place. And, uh, kind of curses that can take over these entire areas so what do you say for next time i i do a kind of deep dive into that and maybe even look at some of the maybe spirits of place of something like oklahoma right and we we can kind of actually make that a theme because i think that this is just very interesting and it's something that i believe in entirely and would just be a pretty cool personal uh, uh investigation on on my part at least what do you think of that
1: I think that's a great idea. I think that builds on our interest in psychogeography. I think it also, you know, it, it ties in very really tightly with the ghost radio signal because, you know, signals do vary with with yeah. topography. You know, they change. Mm-hmm. They change mm-hmm. with strength depending on on what the the landscape and the mindscape is. And maybe we can find out more about the ghost radio signal by looking at this concept of spirits of place. Uh yeah. and I think that also ties in very strongly with some of the original stuff we were talking about in terms of indigenous perspectives. Mm-hmm. You know, not just uh spirits but demons, different a whole sort of taxonomy of spirits. Right. Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah, absolutely. So moving from that, I want to talk a little bit also talking about curses and creepy things and demons. I want to talk a little bit about Bruce Lee's son Brandon.
1: Yeah, I'm interested in that. I I I don't I I need to be filled in a little bit. I I have some thoughts and some knowledge about that, but I think uh, I'm I'm very anxious to hear what you have to say. So yeah, let's do that.
0: Okay, so Brandon Lee was uh, all set to star as the Crow, which he did actually. They I believe they filmed almost the entire movie before his uh, his tragic on set accident. He was. Um, the director of the film was a little bit skeptical at first and didn't want to do any kind of stunt casting, but was very impressed with, you know, Brandon's charisma and his athletic talent, much like his father. Right. So the crow is based off of a comic book in which a man much like, uh, sort of like Batman stories. Uh, he is taking revenge on the people who have wronged him only in the case of the crow. This guy is actually shot dead with his girlfriend by, um, some nasty people and he comes back to life uh, because of a magical crow and begins to enact his revenge. It's a cool movie and it turned into a series, obviously not with Brandon Lee at the head of them, but there's a, there's several films. Uh, There was one called city of angels, which actually starred Iggy pop. It's actually worth checking out just for how bizarre it is. Um,
1: Oh, okay. I love Iggy pop.
0: Yeah. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's great. So, the the set this was 1994 and the set of the crow was uh, plagued with problems from the minute it started so um one of the the crew got into a really bad car accident another member of the crew uh actually on the very first day of shooting touched a high voltage wire and was electrocuted um Uh, there was Jeez. a disc, there was a disgruntled employee who ran his car uh, through the special effects studio that was set up there. Uh, there was a screwdriver through the hand. The weather was bad, um, and there was a drive-by shooting that took place. This was in LA, just a few streets away from one of the locations. Right. So all of this very ominous stuff is going on, and uh, apparently the crew was behind schedule. And they needed a quick shortcut because they didn't have any blanks. They didn't have any dummy bullets. So what they decided to do is that they were going to take the... I'm not a big gun guy, but they were going to take, I guess, the propellant from each bullet, right? They were going to take that out in order to make dummies. But what they did is they forgot to actually remove the primers of the bullets.
1: Oh, yes, okay.
0: So this was turned out to be a very deadly mistake uh, Brandon Lee was filming his scene where his character gets shot and he was in fact actually shot with a with a 44 uh, caliber bullet um, and all film of this was destroyed obviously but it was definitely captured on film uh, I can't recall who the actor was who shot him somebody who never really went on to achieve any big uh, stardom or anything like that he was a character actor but You try to imagine what that must be like just for that guy, you know, to have accidentally shot uh, a person and killed them on set. I imagine that sort of haunted him to this day. But there are very strange things that both Brandon and his father uh, had a lot of connections with. Um, In particular, Bruce Lee's last film was called The Game of Death, right? Mm-hmm. And in the game of death his character is actually on a film set and someone attempts to assassinate him by switching out the, the dummy bullets for live bullets which already is pretty creepy and weird right
1: That is creepy and weird yeah. uh well that certainly falls under our our rubric of uh you know anomalous and conspiratorial and generally uh, woo woo kind of stuff, <laughs>
0: absolutely. And so, on the more on the less woo woo side, there are rumors, of course, when you're dealing with the Chinese film industry that Bruce Lee was um, involved with the triad, you know, crime syndicate. This is very similar to Japanese direct to video film with the mm-hmm. Yakuza in that country. Yes, it's all, all the funding sort of comes from these shady groups, and there's thoughts that they that. Bruce was getting a little bit too big for his britches and didn't want to listen anymore. And so not only did they kill him, but they waited, you know, 28 years to murder his son as well. I'm not entirely convinced about that. I think something spookier is going on. So we mentioned at the beginning of part one, this movie called dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which as I said back then was in every comic book that I opened up. It was a game gear game that I had purchased uh, I was really, really excited for this for this movie. Now this is a year before uh, Brandon Lee is is killed on the set of the crow. But in the film, at the end of the movie, Bruce Lee has been getting stalked by this by this demon, right? This kind of metaphorical demon that's been stalking him since he was born. There's a theme in the film dragon of this curse, right. And towards the end of it, he decides to fight it. It's this kind of karate scene. It's a very, uh, it's a very interesting artistic choice, you know, for a biopic of Bruce Lee to have, you know, him actually fighting a demon in it. But at the very end of the of mm. the movie, the demon loses interest in Bruce and actually turns towards his son, and that's where the movie ends. Again, a year before Brandon was killed on the set. There are some interesting and spooky things going on here. What do you make of all of that?
1: Well, there's, you know, I think there are some factors that we were talking in the first part um, about what it was that that made Bruce Lee so compelling as opposed to any other, you know, even pretty significant Asian martial arts action figure actor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and we, we, you know, I think picked out a few things. I think that there was a kind of, uh, a form of charisma that we call sex appeal. Uh, I think timing, timing is a big factor there. Uh Um, he hit a wave at at a moment when we were looking for multicultural heroes and, there was a very strong infrastructure of Asian action films, so he wasn't reinventing something, but certainly extending its reach. Uh, I mean, I remember being across the Pacific Islands in a lot of you know really strange small communities, but they would have a movie theater, and that's the kind of stuff that would would work. That mm-hmm, that's what mm-hmm. would would get people's attention. Uh, so there's there are a, a range of factors there. I don't know if those are in play in the Brandon case, but I do, I would say that, um, I mean, for some reason, stupid reason, I I remember that Ryan O'Neill, you know, the actor Ryan, his son died in a boating accident. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't find that very interesting. I find it very interesting that Natalie Wood fell off a boat. I think that's a great Hollywood mystery. I'm a really uh, a, just very addicted to the possibilities of that. So there's something in these death. I mean, I think the that fact that violence plays a link in both. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in, in the sense that we that was the suggestion that somehow Bruce Lee's death was the result of a brain uh, incident that was caused by combat, you know, some sort mm-hmm. of hit. There was a drug possibility or a combination of a drug cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, my, my my point here is that the nature of the death is significant uh, mm-hmm. to creating and that kind of mythic sort of edge. A shooting on the set of a movie I mean, I guess that that's almost the the plot of many uh, like Columbo shows or, you know, you know, you kind of, well, why isn't that a murder, you know?
0: Right. And it gets even more dubious because the, um, the autopsy that was performed on Brandon after his death was in fact forged in that the, um, why is the word for who performs autopsies? Coroner. Yes. Slipping my mind. Oh my goodness, David. Baby brain. Uh, The coroner who uh, said that he, you know, looked over Brandon's body, uh, later admitted to lying and that he actually didn't investigate at all and just signed off on something that was completely false. So that ties in, I think, with the Bruce Lee thing, because you mentioned the head trauma. I had never heard the head trauma. I'd heard that he took a muscle relaxer and was hypersensitive to it. But doesn't that sound like bullshit? for someone who is like a hyper-physical specimen like Bruce Lee, a hyper-sensitivity to a muscle relaxer. He took one one muscle relaxer. Give me a break. No way. And
1: and there was some strange stuff and confusion about where he was and who he was seeing on the day. Uh, None of the stories just total up into a very clear-cut thing. Uh, and I think it, it's a fair contrast to look at uh, another major mythic figure that we've talked about, uh, James Dean. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there you have the archetypal charisma machine. I mean, he only made three movies, died at twenty three or twenty four, but we know exactly how he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there isn't a mystery that way, although there's some strange features of it. But in the case of the of the Lees, um there's a lot of unanswered questions, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Particularly, you know, that Bruce's parents uh believed that a curse was following them from a, from his youth, right? Mm-hmm. That they felt right. the need to hide him from this curse by calling him by a girl's name. Right. Which again isn't uh, it's not unheard of in Chinese culture, but it is strange, right? That his older sibling would pass away and they feel that there's this kind of curse that goes down the line. Um I think You know him dying at thirty two. It's very close to Jesus's age of thirty three. You know, and it's it's in Brandon was one year off from the twenty seven club because he was twenty eight when he passed away. But it's the you know it's these these things that all don't (laughs) that may be stretching. It it doesn't quite. Oh no, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely not trying to uh, make that. What I'm what I'm saying is that actually that it's it's not quite neat and nice. From a metaphorical standpoint, either you see what I'm saying? Like it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't quite add up numerically. It's all just it's all very strange.
1: Well, here are two uh, two ways to to uh, to look at this. Um, somewhere along the line, I saw this phrase that Aldous Huxley died in L.A. on the same day that JFK was shot in Dallas. Mm. Good alibi. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was kind of, and then the other, you know, poss- and I think that's a little bit of a comment on, you know, one of the criticisms of conspiracy theories of any kind, no matter how uh, reasonably grounded, someone will always dismiss it and go, well, yeah, you just create, you know, of course, and on and on and on, you know, it is possible to stretch things out of all uh, reasonable semblance of shape and and make anything, anything, you know, we understand yeah. that. But I, I don't I think most of those theories or urban legends disappear pretty quickly because people just don't buy them. They don't have enough mm-hmm. credibility. They don't have enough, they don't actually have enough mystery in them to keep people's attention. And they do seem like just distortions of of you know what could be completely unrelated uh factors. But then there is an issue, which I think you kind of hinted at, which I think is sort of cool, and is a no-country idea if there ever was one. What about the assumption that curses are, yeah, they're just part of everything. They should be taken for granted. I mean, Mm -hmm. why even question it? I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I think there are many cultures where, wait a minute, I mean, that's the reality. That's the given. It right. would be very right. strange if we didn't have that.
0: Right. No, I 100% agree, and I think that that is what links our talk about Seattle to the Lees. I was going to ask you about this about how you feel about generational curses, but I think if you're looking at it from an anthropological lens, a curse is just a thing that that happens. That's just that's just true. But what is what? I know you know a lot about you know the the people of Papua New Guinea. What what is their relationship to the generational curses?
1: Oh, they're very real. They're they're very real. It's not that they can't be undone, mm-hmm. and I mean I think we 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 should probably say that that there you have uh, a vision of of culture with a capital C that is really driven by and expressed in very concrete terms dramatized if you like or staged by specific individuals it's not Mm -hmm. something that is just in there or happening it's something that comes out of of specific people such that if someone dies some part of the culture dies Hmm. um and i think therefore that the the idea of curses and sort of um well, not games playing in any sort of frivolous sense, but a kind of chess gaming sense across history of of curse and blessing, manipulation by magic means. There are are many uh, tribal groups who would just say, well, look, what could be more obvious than that? I mean, yeah. I, you, <laughs> what do we tell you? You know, right. it, 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 of course it's happening. Um and and a lot of that drives then the, the, the mythology in terms of stories and songs and artifacts, weapons, masks, uh, the way canoes are made. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it becomes the influencing uh, design vector.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at a book right now on my shelf called Ancestral Medicine. And it's the idea that there are that everybody at this point in the timeline has some sort of generational curse somewhere up the line one of your ancestors did something and the mm-hmm. goal of the book is to help you to usher in or to communicate with the spirits of these dead people to undo the curses that have have been done and i'm wondering about you know you talking about the the people of you know of Papua New Guinea and this idea of masks and canoes and things like that well in in our culture, we have, we have film and I wonder about the dragon, the Bruce Lee story and that demon who turns to to Brandon. I wonder if that wasn't the worst thing that they could have possibly done, right? If they didn't realize the power of film and what they were doing by directing that energy from the father to the son, almost like, Setting the the curse in motion to to take you know a culture who had a, a firmer grasp on the way that curses work would have just been like well no we can't we can't have that in the movie at all don't you think like they would have they would have known not to do that what do you think about that oh movie?
1: I I absolutely think that that's a very valid point of view from uh you know a a, a magic uh, cultural point of view I mean there there would be uh, a simple analogy would be uh certain color schemes, you know, mm-hmm. say black or red, you know, they're they're black, red, or white. There might be some situations where you just don't use those. Or uh in a feng shui sort of sense, you know, you don't uh, there there are certain obvious principles that just need to be followed. Mm-hmm. And whereas from a Western perspective, we might go, oh no, that's just, you know, that's non, that's superstition. Well, I I, and I think that is a crucial word, uh, superstition. Mm-hmm. I, I encourage uh, listeners to to look up the etymology of that. Super is always an interesting prefix. I think I, you know we we seem we feel like we know what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's another sort of meta. You know, beyond greater. You know, all that. Well, yeah. Let's think about that superstition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we've said with, you know, somebody's narrative is somebody else's truth. Somebody's freedom fighter is somebody else's terrorist. Somebody's science is somebody else's fake science. Somebody else's magic is somebody else's superstition or Mm -hmm. nonsense. You know, Mm -hmm. all of that gets around examining the real principles at work. And I think if we looked across that Took that field of, of human activity, it's kind of all related, you know. Yeah. Um, and and it, it really is. Um, well, it makes me think of that that line from uh, the Corpus Hermeticum: uh, "Who could be man? Who is more manifest than God?" Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people get upset by that, but it's it's a great piece of rhetoric because it instantly you know forces oh well, uh, huh? I have to think. I have to break that down. And the answers are always unsatisfactory. Who? What is more obvious than the efficacy of superstition? Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it goes to, to Pascal's wager. You know, why not? I mean, does it really, isn't it better not to walk under a ladder
0: just, you know? Just in case, and, unless, you, yeah. unless you can't avoid it at all. <laughs> unless there's no other way to get around that ladder. And who wants to be breaking
1: mirrors? I mean, you know, really. Uh, oh yeah. So no. there, there are some uh, kind of. I think there's a lot of hidden wisdom in, the, and all of these things. As we, uh, in our last uh, behind the paywall, such so people may remember that uh, David's challenge, his imaginative challenge, was to take us back to the uh, the first moment, the invention of the, the cliched expression, shooting fish in a barrel. And he did a great uh, rendition of what, how that, that wonderful moment that uh, it was lost in time until he, (laughs) till he revealed it for us. Uh, All of these things, you know, every cliche, every, you know, apparent folk belief is some sort of fossilized oscillation of events and interchanges from perhaps a very deep past.
0: I think that that's 100% true. Do you think on the topic of curses and the Lee curse, do you think that there was a type of synergy between the the region of Seattle and his own personal curse? Maybe some kind of amplification effect that happened by him living in an area that might be in a more broad sense cursed. Sorry to keep shitting on Seattle. Really, anybody who's listening to this, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a horrible city or anything. But going off of the the kind of no country mythos that that's, that Seattle is a cursed place, I wonder if that wasn't a you know an amplification system of these things.
1: Well, you know, I think it certainly plays an enormous part in in the characters and personalities of these famous native sons. You know, whether it's Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain, or, you know, I, there's something about the spirit of place, which we said we are going to explore more fully uh, next week. And I think mm-hmm. that might be something that we have to really pull apart across several episodes. But there is something really distinct about the Seattle environment and the kinds of figures that it's raised to have broken through. I mean, I I thought it was interesting at some point that uh, I can't remember exactly what the joke is, but but uh, Bruce Springsteen makes a lot of jokes about Seattle and a lot lot of jokes about you know the lack of fashion and the fact that everybody looks like they're going for a hike Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of plaid shirt and then you know REI's from here and you know it's it it's a certain kind of caricatured sort of look. That uh has some validity. And think of think of Springsteen. I mean, to me, he is iconically, absolutely from the Jersey shore. He's yeah. not from Brooklyn. No. You know? No. I mean, he write may write a few songs about New York and about, you know, East Harlem or whatever, but no, he's from uh you know uh, the the part of the Jersey Shore that would give you a club like the Stone Pony, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about the Seattle uh, environment that played a huge role in these characters. And I think that if you wanted to pick up on that um, one aspect of of both of the of the Lees, that a sense of arrogance. Uh-huh. You know, this is something that kind of came out a little bit later because they were, well, certainly Bruce Lee was deified and was considered this really cool, you know, before the 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 show with David Carradine, you know, Nate, you know Kung Fu. Uh, well, Bruce Lee made that possible. He made it, you know, everything was, it was suddenly cool to be not just a martial artist, but kind of a wizard and a, and yeah. a wise man, you know? Right, it, right. And some of, I don't know if there's a great talk show where... uh it really is Bruce Lee. It's in black and white. I can't remember who the host is, uh, but it, it's worth checking out. And you watch it, and, and he comes, he delivers some of his f- philosophical lines. And I swear to God, you can't tell uh, what is real and, and really cool. You think, yeah, okay, that, that, that's good. And what is complete gibberish and right. almost a <laughs> caricature of mm-hmm. so-called you know oriental wisdom you know mm-hmm. it's it's very finely wrought and and i don't know if he knew that
0: was it uh the pierre Burton show maybe i don't
1: is uh, maybe, maybe not maybe. Okay. he About looks it. really cool on it he's got you know a great collarless jacket, and mm-hmm. i mean he looks uh, fashionable in a way that, that, in, you know, Sa- seattle Seattleites just, when I mean, he was living in LA then, but, uh, he looks really like an international star. Mm-hmm. And so when he you know, talks about his fighting method and his fighting philosophy and energy exchange, and, you know, it, it sounds really good. Then you think, wait a minute, that's just like some bullshit off a of calendar or something. This is, this is, you know, God, this is no pop culture, God. Um, right, and, and, right. And if it the other thought I've had, I it's spent a while since I've seen it, but uh, I I do remember thinking at one point that yeah there was some cool stuff said, and then there were a few things where if it had been a white person saying, you'd think oh that's a send up, you know yeah,
0: right that right.
1: that's that's not fun you know that's not cool you know right um, but what the 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 possibility here is that something in the Seattle environment within that family and the movement from Hong Kong to this part of the West coast created a kind of arrogance that may have then set certain things in motion. And maybe we can call that a curse, you know, uh, yeah. hmm. I don't know. It depends what you, you know, I think the idea of a curse is beautifully flexible. You
0: know? It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to get more into that on the next show, but I think, right now it might be time for practical tip maybe a dream
1: perhaps a dream Uh, i've I've got a practical tip and a dream but we have another round of david's mind the magic
0: how it's trying to slip that
1: this is is a fairly (laughs) tactical this is a fairly tactical challenge and i i i think uh Honestly, I think it, it has some relevance. I, I don't think this is, is going to be as big a stretch for you as it might be for someone else. I hope that's not uh, an offensive statement, but I do think that you'll when you hear it, you'll agree. Okay,
0: let's go.
1: Okay, this is based on some graffiti I saw. What would you shout at traffic? If you'd lost your mind, that's a very Seattle relevant, you know, comment mm-hmm. at this point in time. There's a lot of people shouting at traffic. What would J. David Osborne shout at traffic? What, how would you start to build your crazy ragtail and bobtail church of, of <laughs> lunatic street people? <laughs> you know,
0: oh, that is such an interesting question. What would I shout at traffic?
1: What's your catch cry?
0: Oh, uh, that is so interesting. Um, let me think for just a moment. Let me think. Uh, I would probably shout. Hmm, I'm going to cut out all this thinking and hemming and hawing. <laughs> uh, hmm. I would probably want I would probably go out into traffic and I would just have a counter. I, I might not shout anything at all. I would just have a Ooh. counter that was counting down to something, right? And it would be something a year, month, and a year, a month, a day, and a time. And I would just have that counting down. And I would walk through traffic holding that above my head and I wouldn't speak a word. I would just keep that counter counting down. That's how I would start my cult.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I like that. I like that. Well done. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was hard. Well, every week they get tougher. Um, you know, and, and the experiment will continue. Uh, I think you did say that this is, you feel this is actually strengthening, uh, memory and cognitive. And yes. yes. Well, I think that's good to hear. Uh, yeah, I, that's yeah, the I want, purpose.
0: I'm going to speak on that for just a minute. So I have gone onto a diet of Twitter where I'm on for 10 days and I'm off for 10 days and I might actually shorten the time that I'm on because I simply don't find it to be rewarding in any sense. So I I think I might actually stay off of it. But I was thinking about cancel culture, and I was thinking about how angry everybody is on Twitter, and I really think that both of those things are linked by a lack of memory, not just historical memory, but memory of what they even did the day before. What I mean by that is that if you remember what you did yesterday, it would follow that you could then continue doing that thing that you started doing yesterday. But if you don't remember what you did yesterday, you're like a baby, right? And every day is the first day of your life. And babies, as I have learned, are often very angry. <laughs> they're irritated about things, right? Because they're just they're just learning. They're, they've just come into the world. They're just seeing things and they're fascinated by them and sometimes you get this great smile but often you get what some listeners might have heard in the background there uh, as Rios was taking care of Gus which is a kind of a kind of cry a kind of anger and so all that is to say what I think the the exercises have been doing particularly um, the creative ones that we've done the past three episodes but also trying to slip in words here and there having to work on two channels at the same time is that it has just improved my memory. I, you know, I lost my keys today and I was able to look at the living room and it was almost like I was the terminator. Things were lighting up and then they started lighting up faster and faster. (laughs) And then like a counter going down, it was tick, 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 tick. And then this space lit up. Sure enough, that was where I left my keys because I could reach back into my memory and actually, remember where I was and what I was doing when I set my keys down the day prior. So, <clears throat> I think that doing these exercises would be so beneficial for our listeners because, because you stop being interested in the constant present of social media and the constant present of, so, of cancel culture. You can't cancel somebody if you remember that they were your friend two days ago. You just can't do that. You have to be able to erase that and say, the past doesn't matter. I don't remember the past. All I remember is that you said something right now that I find egregious. And therefore, you're going to essentially not just be dead to me, but dead to whoever will listen to me, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think that if we're going to move forward from this moment that will, I guarantee this is on record, that will go down as one of the most... Embarrassing moments in American history since McCarthyism. Uh, I think the first step to that is 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 doing little brain exercises and just trying to remember simple stuff. What did you have for dinner three nights ago? I know when I ask that question, people might not know what they had for dinner. I remember. I'll
1: tell you. I'll tell you. That's exactly right. And this is very, very much link to the methodology I put forward in my textbook for Rutledge Press. I, I can't say how important I think this is because this is at the heart, this is the one of the key mechanisms for the crisis that we are undergoing and which to some extent, I think you could fairly say Seattle has a lot to do with it may, it's certainly not the source of it. I, I'm not saying it's the the center of the ripples. But it, it, it's one of the PowerPoints for a kind of paralysis. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting idea, a PowerPoint of paralysis. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what's happening. Um, and cancel culture is being advocated and pushed for in a kind of direct, intentional sort of way. Well, why? Well, maybe because the culture here is canceling itself without intentionality, yep. because people mm-hmm. are simply... Sinking into meme amnesia, uh, our our education programs are truly declining with with objective force. And meanwhile, we're seeing a whole generation uh, disappear—a train, mm. a major mm-hmm. transition. And in you know, if we think back and put that in into the context of uh, a remote village in somewhere in Oceania or or South America or Africa, I mean. A bunch of people dying is is really important. It's it's more than just some bodies. It's mm-hmm. it's cultural damage, and we mm-hmm. don't think of that. I mean, I don't. No. I, it would be very very unusual for there to be uh, a lamentation, mourning, grieving, uh, on the passage of someone because of loss of culture. We absolutely think that that no, they'll they'll live forever. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Elton John's music will live on. You know, we have this you know, the supposed, you know, supposed, uh, absolute belief in a, as in a guaranteed sense of inheritance and mm. survival.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I have no idea what basis that's on. That's ridiculous. You know, Yeah,
0: it is ridiculous. And I think that when you start having memory, you begin to be able to put your life in a context. And when you put that, your life in that context, it means that you start to come to grips with, as you're saying that it has an end. Right. And so, you know, the cancel culture—if you turn it into a verb, which we're we're fond of doing on this show—the the meaning takes on something completely different. You know, it's not a noun anymore. It's not a thing. It's not a culture that cancels. It is the cancellation of culture in general, and culture is intimately exactly. tied in with with memory. It's intimately tied in with memory, and and I think you know when you see people on Twitter who have all their prescriptions for what to do about Afghanistan, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't want to take. Advice on Afghanistan from somebody who can't remember what they ate for dinner three nights ago. It's just, you know. (laughs) Yeah. You know, get a grip, you know, get a grip on memory, get a grip on your own death, get a grip on the fact that you only have a certain amount of time to live on this planet. And I just, I don't get why you'd want to spend that, I don't know, telling people not to watch Woody Allen movies. It seems like you could do better things with your time.
1: Exactly. Well, this, uh, this show's practical tip builds on that. It's another. Cool. Uh, it's very simple, and it's free. You don't have to spend any money on this, and it builds on an idea that I, I think is is very obvious and part of you know uh, the practice of, of you know many creative, uh, intelligent people, namely keeping track of things in a journal sense,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I think. But the, the the key here is a very very stark juxtaposition okay i mean juxtapositions as opposed to you know uh contrasts or binaries or we we want something that is that are really distinct enough
0: Mm -hmm.
1: to set up some oscillating energy that really makes us question some deeper field and frames of value Mm -hmm. okay so now we may think of if we're coming out of a really really busy period, hectic, stressful or maybe coming into a weekend it might be Saturday or Sunday afternoon or there's there's a time where we all want to do as little as possible. We want um, nothing to do. Yep. Nothing to do. No responsibilities, no obligations. It may be the relief that we feel when we've uh decided not to go to an event. We've, we've made up an excuse. No, I'm sick. And I, you make the call and you think, oh, thank God I'm out of that now.
0: Yeah.
1: Whatever. The important point is to get a a, a little constellation of moments, situations, challenges where you don't have to do anything. You're off the hook, so to speak. Juxtaposed with that, Think about the same number of situations. If you've done one, do do one. If you've done two, do two. If you've done three, the more you get, the more oscillation, the clearer the picture you get, not surprisingly. Think about the situations that you resist have anger or frustration or just a sense of confusion about where it appears that there's nothing that you can do,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: okay? Mm-hmm. There's nothing so we've got nothing being done in both instances, right, mm-hmm. but two entirely different tonal psychological interior experiences and if you can keep track of the of that for a couple of weeks and look at those situations, I guarantee you that if you've you know uh, put them uh, right next to each other on the page, uh, even as a set of words, they start to move around. They mm. animate. They animate, and they come together, and they have a kind of weird relationship. There's a friction between them. There's a tension. There's some sort of something happens, whether it's like licorice being pulled apart or molten glass, take. there is some dynamic change. And that, I guarantee you, will give you a new little glimpse at some of the deep or oblique values, assumptions, structures of thought that are very hard to access otherwise. And the beautiful, the doubly beautiful thing is that All of these tie into not intellectual or philosophical things, but much more ego based, power based, identity based things of who you are, how good you feel about that, what you're trying to do, what influence you're trying to have on the world, how you're trying to uh, deploy your magic.
0: Okay, I love that. That's great. I'm definitely going to do that one. I think that that is a hundred percent actually you mentioned the word magic. I think that that is really good magic in general that's a that's a brain rewiring exercise if there ever was one
1: it yeah. is it really is it, it and it 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 really does work mm-hmm. and it starts to trigger and set off its own reactions as as a lot of these little exercises do uh, and it's very easily done. And it, it can be done, you know, one step at a time. But do try to get that balance between mm-hmm. these two. Something where you're relieved there's nothing to be done. A situation where you're absolutely not relieved because there's nothing you can do. Mm. And that is a very interesting lens to apply.
0: Love it. Dream tie.
1: Okay. This is kind of a really personal dream. Uh But I think it speaks to how symbolism can work in very concrete sort of ways. Uh, There's a female friend who I have had involvement with of many kinds, but an intimate, personal uh, love, romance kind of thing. And it's it's been uh, there have been stages where it's it's a bit tricky. In her backyard is a beautifully painted cabana, sort of, uh, you know. It it you could call it just a shed, but it's 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 painted festive uh, Mexican colors. Uh, It just it looks exciting and cool, you know. And it's where there's another refrigerator. There's a whole bunch of uh, you know fun stuff that's stored. So it's it's not a garage. It's something more that the family is in and out of more regularly and it's a kind of a a doorway to fun and to generosity and to party. And in the past, there has been a lot of entertaining of of friends, uh, her children, uh, her students, teacher. So that has been a kind of real focal point. And I, I was obviously feeling some stress in the dream and rather than it, it attach in any way personally uh to her to her person her body her whatever the cabana started to grow it started to increase in size and there was a question of well was it really growing or was it was that just a hallucination and I liked that idea of something externalized a building sort of, of growing and Then I got lost in it, Mm. and I thought that was, because this is not, you know, I was sent to look for, you know, something, some party supply, and I got lost in it. And as listeners may know, I, I do have a very strong textual element in my dreams, and this is absolutely real. I'm not making this up after the fact. Words do come in, and they stick with me. And I found this as a note on the floor, kind of a thing like where you'd almost walk out with it stuck to the bottom of your foot. Mm -hmm. And it was the line, the price of wonder is a degree of fear. And I, I thought that somehow the intensity of that seemed out of keeping with uh, the imagery of it. And yet this building was growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And with it, my anxiety and my sense of, of dislocation and confusion. And I think there's something that uh, I'm, I'm at least going to puzzle over in that, that combination of a very vivid but simple symbol and a very, very pointed expression. That's my thought.
0: Definitely seems like something's coming through because I see the connection to the sea turtles yet again
1: you know? yes yes you know,
0: if there if there's no if there's no if the thing you want is is devoid of surprise right so the surprise and wonder and that element of fear they're all they're all it's all coming together. I think we're getting a sort of grand picture of of some sort of message coming through. I had an interesting dream that really super related but i think it feels right to put it here uh i was i had a dream that rios and i were in the woods and we were joined the gus wasn't there it was just me and her we were joined by a pack of wolves right and we walked through these kind of dark woods in this dark mountain and we came upon a cabin and when we got to the cabin we opened it up and there was a, a serial killer who was sitting at a, at a table there's nothing else in the room except for the table that he's sitting at. So I sat next to the serial killer and placed a binder on the table full of evidence against the serial killer that Rios had culled from several true crime podcasts she'd been listening to. And as I read all the evidence, all the crimes that this serial killer had committed, he uh, he rested his head on my shoulder. That's where the dream ended with a serial killer resting. Is that on my shoulder?
1: Oh, I love that. Kids. That's a nice, that's a lovely, gentle juxtaposition, you know, position of intimacy and violence all in one. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Ah, Nicely done.
0: Well, on that note, folks, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Um, Chris, do you have anything you wanted to add before we, before we sign off here?
1: No, no, I uh, I don't. I think that we've got some interesting ground to to open up for next time. We certainly, uh, well, we'll keep, in part one, we've definitely got more anomalies, conspiracies, strange monsters, fun, interesting things that don't fit into an easy frame. But I, I like this, uh, a, a very direct focus on, on the spirit of place and spirits of place. And uh a question that I have thought of in, in my time here, I, I wrote down, uh, does spatial make any sense at all?
0: Mm. And
1: I, I think that might be an interesting starting point because, mm. uh, I mean, we think that, that everything that has physical presence is by definition spatial, so we don't need to say anything about that. If it isn't spatial, then what the hell is it? Because it's mm. pretty damn weird.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, well, on that note, until next time, folks, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, we'll see you next time.
1: Thanks, everyone. See ya.